Hi everyone, this is Manuel Arciniegas, director of the Andrus Family Fund. Welcome back for the second part of my conversation with George Galvez of Courage, Communities United for Restorative Youth Justice, and Eric Stegman of Native Americans in Philanthropy. Thank you for listening to Out of the Margins. I do talk, George, a little bit about shedding, you know, the the fact that the uprisings have made, um, you know, COVID first made visible the complete and utter um, disregard of, of black and brown and indigenous lives in the public response system. Right. And so immediately we started to see which communities were going to be most vulnerable um, to the disease, which communities were not even being named as needing um, protective equipment, medical services, which communities already had an already um, really challenged infrastructure to deal with the challenge that COVID presented. A lot of what happened post-COVID, at least for us, was now with the uprising, right? Who... Um, are we noticing or seeing as like taking on the triple burden of responding, providing immediate care on the front lines, and then also having setting the uh, strategy and the agenda for what's possible as an alternative? I have plenty to say, but I know I was just taking up a lot of space, so I'm, I'm happy to yield to my brother Eric first. And but I have a lot to say on this. <laughs> no, keep it going. I'd, I'd love to hear George. Thank you, Eric. Um, so first of all, um, I'd like to invoke one of the famous quotes from our, um, you know, I'm, I come, you know, I'm, I'm coming to you by way of occupied Muwekma Ohlone territory, otherwise known as Oakland, California, and um, that's also the birthplace of the Black Panther Party. And I'm fortunate enough to have elders in my life in the movement who come from, you know, American Indian Movement, the Black Panther Party, Young Lords, you know, Berets, Black Berets for Justice, and many of these circles. And I think the benefit of that is also being able to understand, you know, um, just, you know, um, some of the lessons and teachings, you know, what worked, what didn't work, and also recognizing this unique historical moment and how, you know, we may shift, but also adapt some of the best practices from that time. So, um, you know, one of the things the Panthers said is we don't need police protection, we need protection from the police. And, you know, the Panthers were born out of really police accountability in Oakland, California. They began as some of the very first cop watchers doing police watching. They would um, use police scanners, they would follow the police and monitor them from a safe distance because they knew that um, even back, yeah, back then, what's, what's happening now, what we see is that routine traffic stops. Um, we see black lives uh, being, you know, uh, being murdered, you know, by blue, and um, and we saw rampant police abuse. And at that time, um, California was an open carry state, and so they were also, you know, um, you know, exercising their their Second Amendment right to uh, to carry. And in the, you know, when people talk about, you know, the NRA and uh, the, you know, we didn't see the NRA stand up. For Philando Castile, right? That was an open carry state. And he did everything that he should have done by the book and was still murdered, right? Well, something that a lot of people forget about is that the NRA, and it was a Republican governor of California, Ronald Reagan, 
who actually um, abolished the open carry in California. And it was for no other reason except because the Black Panthers were out there and they were armed and they were, uh, you know, they were out there police watching. And, uh, and the threat that that had to white supremacy in California, you know, to white hegemony. And so, um, you know, we're now in a moment where there's uh, tremendous opportunity because of what's happening on the streets to inform and not just do not not just to reform but to fundamentally transform policies and systems we know that it's actually us like we keep us safe it's not you know it's not the police and the truth of the matter is is in most municipalities counties uh you know law enforcement consume the majority of budgets it's not it's not unusual to see that 80 percent of a city budget is consumed by policing and we're not being protected it's it's evident right we see the evidence of, you know, peaceful protesters. And I really don't want to reinforce a false dichotomy of like the good activists and the bad activists, because I actually have a lot of love for, you know, I, what I would say the authentic anarchists who are targeting and, and see class warfare and targeting some of these multinational businesses and make a distinction between those who I would say are, are um, saboteurs, provocateurs that are actually coming from the alt-right to instigate in some of that classic divide and conquer that I referred to earlier by targeting immigrant-owned, native-owned, black-owned businesses. And there's a fundamental difference. And that's so you can tell who's who in the zoo just by some of those behaviors, right? But I wanted to just point out that we see folks who completely unprovoked, police are out there running their vehicles into protesters. They're uh, pepper spraying small children. They're cracking the heads open of elders. They're deliberately targeting media and journalists, right? All of these, if you look at these, these behaviors, anywhere else in the world would be seen as major, major human rights violations and really reflections of a loss of any kind of democracy and any kind of freedom. The United States has lost its moral authority, I think for us as indigenous communities, we always knew that. Anybody who studied federal Indian law, you know, uh, you know could tell you that um, every single time something looked favorable to us, all they did was rewrite the law. We've never seen a treaty that's actually been um, respected. You know, so, um, you know, the word of the U.S. government has, you know, I, I think in Indian country has never uh, carried any weight. But, um, but for those who believed and had some faith or confidence in this system, I think that, you know, it's becoming explicitly clear from the images that we're seeing on television and in, in, in the media and for any of us who are witnessing those with our own eyes on the streets. And so a better investment is actually in opportunities, resources, services and programs, housing, education, just basic safety nets. Uh, you know, career and education pathways that lead people to viable incomes and sustainable, you know, um, employment. Those are the things that keep us safe. And what we're seeing, too, is that majority of the crimes that were occurring even before uh, this pandemic were primarily property crimes, which are crimes of survival. Crime had actually been at an all-time low in most places. Youth crime was down, hom homicide everywhere across the country, when you look at the, states, the, at the stats and you look at the data, crime has been down. But when we're also seeing the widest gap between rich and poor that we've ever seen, and we're seeing you know, displacement and gentrification, and we're seeing the rise of homelessness and homeless encampments, and people are just struggling to survive, people are gonna do what they gotta do to survive. So these are property crimes that most people are being incarcerated for. And even when we look at the other um, crimes that are being, you know, um, most impacted, it's, it's drug crimes, something that could be treated medically, something that could be treated through mental health. And how many times have we actually seen what was supposed to be a mental health stop 
and you know, or, or mental health uh, intervention, and someone calls and seeks help, and it's law enforcement who come in, and their remedy is to put 81 bullets in somebody, or whatever the number may be, uh, you know. And so, how can we actually draw on mental health professionals and people who are actually going to get to the root causes and honor the sacred integrity of life, you know, uh, to be, do these interventions? And so, when we start to talk about defund the police and disband the police, that's what we're referring to. And what we know is that when Mayor de Blasio was first elected and people were and he ran on a campaign of police accountability, although he hasn't lived up to that, um, you know, it was the NYPD turned their back on him very famously shortly after he was elected. And they also vowed that they were going to stop policing. And that lasted about two weeks because what happened is that crime was at an all time low when NYPD stopped policing. You know what I mean? So what we saw is when they, when they refused to do their job, when they essentially boycotted doing their job, uh, you know, which any other public servant that wouldn't have, you know, that wouldn't have uh, been able to ride, um, crime in the largest city in our nation went down. And so, you know, I just wanna point that out and I wanna just say that um, investing in human uh, beings, investing in families and communities, um, that's what's gonna keep us safe. I appreciate that. I have a, a couple of follow-up questions, but I want to just turn to Eric to see if you have any responses to what George just said. No, I think George laid out a lot of the um, system issues um, pretty succinctly. I think, um, you know, I, I think everything George said is is spot on when it comes to needing to look at a number of these different aspects of it and understand that there is a narrative problem here you know a lot of you know what george is pointing out is that you know the reality in the community and on the ground is not always what's being perpetuated outside i think one of the biggest moments i've seen with this whole uprising happening is that you know the the narrative is really pivoted it's shifted people are driving it themselves differently it's not being driven by um you know sort of a police infrastructure i i also just want to underscore as we move forward there have been so many calls from activists across the country and world at this point that we have to keep front and center, which is this need for truth and healing in as we move forward with this work. You know, I'm always I've been thinking a lot about my great grandfather, because as I was a little kid, I never actually knew him. But I did know through my family that he absolutely hated the Mounties. And I never understood why, because I grew up watching Dudley Do-Right on, uh, you know, on Rocky and Bullwinkle. And um, I it was only years later when I was doing research on her uh, on his boarding school that the the Mounties were the ones in charge of taking children away from their families and rounding up runaway kids from boarding schools. And my great grandfather was one of those runaways. They were put in solitary confinement in the bottom of my great grandfather's boarding school in Saskatchewan when they ran away. Um, you know, we, we, our communities understand very deeply um, what's going on here. And I urge all advocates to keep that message front and center that we have to have that truth and reconciliation piece be a major part of this. Um, but I especially urge any elected officials who are, you know, hoping to take on this very important duty um, to really transform these systems that if you don't have that as part of it, I don't think any of this will work. I think we've seen, you know, efforts all over the world in South Africa, in Canada as part of the truth and reconciliation process there, they actually issued a major report on the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Um, but there, you know, some things went right and some things didn't quite get there. And I, I, I really hope that what we'll all do now 
as we're moving toward a, a, a reimagined system is we'll go and look at those processes. We'll, we'll hear the voices of the people who've been part of those processes in other parts of the world, because I think there's a lot to be said, I think, especially when we're looking at the solidarity that the Black and Native communities um, have in this, because our history is very different in many ways, but when it comes to the construction of the police state, uh, it, there's a lot of unfortunate similarities there, and I think that history really matters. So I hope that, you know, the the healing that George was, you know, really underscoring in the beginning of the conversation that all of our youth leaders are really pushing, you know, that's what's going to help others reimagine this because I, it does seem like a daunting task to completely change our conception of what these systems could look like. But I think when you are there with community members who are, are pushing those healing strategies forward, it's pretty easy to see a totally different kind of future. I appreciate that, Eric. Definitely um, our partners on the ground also echo the invitation to center um, the, the needs of communities and engage in like restorative processes where um, we're naming the harms and folks have to hold it, really hold it and really um, lean in with care and respond to those harms in a way that will prevent them from repeating themselves in the future. Um, you know, I was curious to hear a little bit from you guys on, you know, this is a, another movement moment. Like, there, there's movement moments that have been going on forever, correct? You know, y'all been doing this work for a long time. This is an upswell where we see so many people who've joined the protest for the first time in their life. Where we see people who are even related to organizers and activists and have not been politicized or touched by any institution um, who have an analysis but haven't plugged into any formation, they're, like, activated. They're raising money. They're hosting, um, you know, setting up altars in communities around uh, with local protests. They're providing direct uh, first aid and care. They're setting up bail funds. They're doing all of the things that is needed to sustain this uprising moment. And my question for you all who've been involved in movements for a long time is, What's it going to take to sustain this new involvement? And what do you see as possible in the short, you know, in the next six months? Um, if protests die down, what's next? And what should we all be thinking about building out as a sustainable, enduring infrastructure? I think the key thing is um, three things. Organize, organize, and organize. Um, we've seen these moments before that felt historic, that felt unprecedented. I mean, I came, I remember being incarcerated when the LA uprising occurred right after the Rodney King verdict. And I remember in my belly and my gut feeling something, once again, not having the words to describe it, to articulate my feelings in a constructive way. And then hearing sort of the media um, and it really not feeling um, reflective of what I was feeling. Um, and uh, feeling inaccurate, they focused on quote unquote looting, they focused on all these other sorts of things, right? And, um, and then, you know, coming in and stepping in as someone who'd been uh, gang labeled into what was like the National Urban Peace and Justice Movement, uh, many folks from street organizations and uh, activists coming together to start talking about peace and justice and what that authentically looks like. And that felt like a, one of those moments too. And we saw how all the commitment from philanthropy, from, uh, from cities, and uh, you know, public systems, 
you know, essentially reflected the trail of broken treaties that we feel in Indian country. None of them materialized. None of them actually, you know, there was no follow through. It didn't happen. And so um, I say that much not to be, you know, I, I'm a little bit of a cynic, but I think a healthy cynicism was required because I'm also cautiously optimistic, right? Um, is maybe the better way to describe it. Um, but organizing is going to be the way that we, um, we sustain it, you know. Um, and I, the other thing is going to be super critical is staying unified, unity. You know what I mean? I think one of the things I observed just coming out of that is I saw a lot of folks kind of scrambling, seeing opportunity, that there may be some short-term funding to address these things and everybody kind of trying to posture and elbow to try to get a little piece, you know, get some crumbs here and there, right, right after the LA uprising. And, um, and you know, and so how we ne don't necessarily succumb and compromise the agenda. I, I love what happened in Minneapolis. I love that the city council unanimously has voted to disband the police department. Um, I'm also, I think that we need to be prepared for how this, how folks are gonna be really trying to um, come up with some, with some piecemeal reform as a way of appeasing folks who've been protesting and, and the moral, like the, like the righteous moral outrage that's been happening so that folks get a false sense of security that things are gonna get better and then we just kind of revert back to the status quo. And that's my biggest fear right now. Um, you know, we're already kind of seeing some elements of that through the California legislature. You know, um, we had some bills earlier this year that were really uh, based on, you know, we've had some major victories. My organization has been involved in sponsoring probably some of the, the some of the biggest police accountability legislation in the state in the last, you know, um, 10 years. And so most recently, AB 392, a bill we were very proud to co-sponsor and felt like a heavy lift. We raised the standard for law enforcement lethal use of force from so-called reasonable, whatever that was supposed to mean, to necessary. What was stripped from the language though, the compromise that was brokered by our governor in order for him to agree to sign it was defining what necessary was. And so we almost, we accepted that, but we also had to kind of know then that, um, that we were gonna prop, there would probably have to end up being some impact litigation or, or, or a trailer bill to really be able to effectively address this. And, um, what we're also seeing is just the problematic, you know, um, nature of district attorneys, many of whose, as elected officials, whose campaigns are primarily funded by police officer unions, and them also being a part of that system, and their failure to hold officers accountable, even under the most egregious circumstances. And so, um, you know, we're exploring a couple things right now. We're in conversations with our folks from uh, California Attorneys for Criminal Justice about a potential bill that would uh, take away jurisdiction from district attorneys and um, create an independent prosecutor focused on just police accountability um, in order to address that conflict of interest. There's uh, several progressive DAs that we've been able to um, help uh, support to get elected in California who have come out and also are advocating that DAs not be allowed to accept donations from police officers unions because of the obvious conflict of interest. Um, and I still think that those are Band-Aid solutions, like defund, disband, disarm, like to me is still the mantra. And we have to be very, very focused on that North Star. And so, um, you know, there's some, some possibilities. One of our bills that I said got pulled that now they're talking about reintroducing. So we're in conversation with Senator Bradford in California is a decertification bill, which basically was, you know, because we have in California what's called a police officer's bill of rights. 
And that, they're, they're, they're the most protected public servants of anybody. It makes it almost impossible to fire or to hold officers accountable, to be able to track abusive officers because their records are confidential. We were able to put a small dent in it by opening up the files of those officers who were involved in shootings or sexual assaults, but only in those cases. And what I would say too is no amount of legislation is actually really going to be affected because what we're seeing is like, for example, in Seattle, uh, the city council banned um, the use of, uh, of, of tear gas. Well, guess what? They haven't stopped using tear gas. You know what I mean? Chokeholds have been banned. Guess what? They haven't stopped using chokeholds. And in some ways, it feels like law enforcement is leaning in as we start to see pushback in a way to say like, we are, uh, you know, because they've operated with impunity for so long, it's like they're standing up and they're willing to defy everybody because what they do know is that they have uh, a white supremacist in the Oval Office who's supporting them. And so they don't feel like they're beholden to the city governments that, or, the, or, or the taxpayers who employ them, the state, or anybody else. Um, so it's very, very concerning. Um, and I think that that's where we're going to have to pay attention is not allow sort of piecemeal reform uh, you know, co-opt the agenda of what we're actually trying to accomplish, which is to fundamentally transform. Thank you so much, George, to encourage us to continue and make sure we're watchful of piecemeal reform, um, that we continue to promote unity, um, and that we move with, uh, what was the phrase you used, like cautious optimism, or I, I forget the phrase. Cautiously, cautiously optimistic, yeah. Be you know, cautiously optimistic, yeah. You know, because I know that like what happened in Minneapolis probably won't occur in every city and to try to do that in every city in this nation is probably just unrealistic to expect. But, you know, one vision I have, I think that law enforcement need to have malpractice insurance the same way that we require that of medical professionals. And if there's an algorithm that can demonstrate that you have a susceptibility to being abusive or homicidal, then you can't be insured, then you can't be employed. You know what I'm saying? Just like a doctor who can't be insured can no longer practice medicine. And so that would also take away from the way that police officers lawsuits, like they don't, they're never impacted. It's the taxpayers that takes away from critical services that could be supporting children, youth and families in our cities. And we're paying millions of dollars every year in one city. Cumulatively, there was an estimate. I can't recall who did the study, but about a year ago, just from memory, it was billions of dollars that they were able to, um, kind of captures through some quantitative research of settled legal settlements that went out from taxpayers to pay off for police abuse settlements. And so if we're talking about billions of dollars, imagine if we could reclaim those dollars and uh, actually, you know, you know, in addition to just defunding the police, just the police abuse settlements can be invested in ways that actually serve our people and serve, you know, and, and, and the goal of achieving authentic public safety. Because trying to police your way into public safety is somewhat of an oxymoron. It's like trying to bomb your way into peace. That was the second part of my conversation with George Galvis of Courage and Eric Stegman of Native Americans in Philanthropy. We're so glad you were able to tune in. Please join us for the next and final part coming up soon on Out of the Margins. Mm -hmm.